When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis. And I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus. And it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets some thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello and welcome to the Strange Boat Podcast. There's no doubt that my guest has been on more strange boats than most, and I expect some a great deal stranger than this one. Steve Souter has been in the very top elite drawer of sea anglers for a long time, a Scottish international boat angler and winner of many medals and trophies. Steve, how are you? It's good to talk to you, mate. Hiya, Keith. I'm great, mate, and it's good to see you. Yeah, as we, well as we, talk to you. Don't, don't let everybody know we can see each other. We're only talking. <laughs> Put your clothes on, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you know, it, this is unbelievable it's i reckon it must be close to 30 years um since we last we first met um probably we were both working for diver at the time so it would have been the early 1990s 90s i think you're yeah pro- i was trying to figure that out earlier on to be honest and um i think it was probably the mid 90s um yeah i had more hair you had less gray hair yeah that's that's about right 30 years i mean probably just before the first tight lines to be honest that is a yeah, which was 95, 90, yeah, it was yeah, 95. Right about 95, yeah. Unbelievable, unbelievable. There's a lot of water passed under the bridge and, and uh, along the tidal current since then, for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, <laughs> lots happened in the fishing world, certainly for me, probably for you as well. 
Um, and I've gone from uh, being Big Steve to hopefully nowadays being Littler, Littler Steve, you know? So I've shed a bit of weight lately, is what I'm trying to say. Have you a good man? I know you, 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 you've been trying that. For, I, I, I succeeded by cutting down on stuff, but if you saw what I ate tonight, you'd know there's some going back on again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're from around Edinburgh. You're, is it Edinburgh itself or you're it's close Edinburgh, to Edinburgh? It's in the middle. Well, Portobello, which is right on the coast. Portobello, of yeah. Famous, famous... Uh, part of, of um, Edinburgh, which yeah, is I've, obviously um, the most famous part of Scotland, I suppose. Yeah, I've, I've never been anywhere else, Keith, to be honest. I've, I've stayed mm. in Edinburgh all my days. I have no intention of going anywhere else. Um, yeah, it's, it's as I say, it's where I cut my teeth fishing as well, Portobello Beach. So um, that's where you started. What, what actually got you into fishing, though? Uh, do you know, I've been asked that loads of times, and probably not one thing in particular, um, but I started fishing with my dad. Um Donkeys years ago, flounder fishing, um, fishing the, the round about the local docks for coal fish, bits and bobs, the local beaches for, for flounders, not catching a lot to be fair in the early days. But you know what it's like, you start catching one or two fish, you branch out a little bit. It went from, from there to, to fishing different marks on the shore for, for codling, for starters. And then all of a sudden, I got drawn into boat fishing. Um, my mother used to have a, a shop in Portobello and beside the shop in Portobello was um, the local bus depot and the bus drivers who used to come into the shop, um, they had a fishing club. And I think if I remember right, I'd only, I'd be a junior. I'd probably be 11, 12 year old. I was sitting working in the shop on a Saturday afternoon as I used to do. And one of the bus drivers came in um, a little bit worse for wear. If I remember, <laughs> he'd been away digging bait locally. And uh, obviously saw me messing about in the shop. The shop was quiet, tying or, or attempting to tie a hook on a bit of line, that kind of thing. And the conversation went, have you ever been on a boat? No. Do you fancy going on a boat? Uh, yes. Um, okay. We'll speak to your mum and dad um, and get you on a boat. And that's what happened. I went with those guys. Oh, couldn't tell you for how many years. But was this a fishing shop your mum ran? No, 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 a newsagent. It was a newsagent. News- Gen- general store, so, you know, uh, some post office come newsagent. Yeah, my, my parents had the same thing at one stage. The, the, yeah. uh, the reason why I asked is, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've run several tackle shops in, in sort of what seems like in a former life now, and it was amazing the amount of times people would walk in and say, you know, can I have a bowl of string or where's the apple pies? And, you know, something <laughs> totally unas- disassociated with angling. So you got talking about fishing in a, in a post office news contact as I used to call it. Pretty them. much. I mean, I've got to be honest, I hated that shop. When I was that age, I hated that shop. I was, it was like a prison to me. But it, it did open a lot of doors. And yeah, so I went fishing with the guys in the bus depot. I mean, some of the, the a lot of these fellas are obviously, they're long gone now, but one or two of them still kick about. And I started, I started learning from the beginning how to dig a few worms, how to tie a basic rig, how to get on a boat. And I actually got quite good at it quite quickly. And uh, it's, there's fond memories, but I've got one stinker of a memory as well about the whole thing is as I began to get a little bit better, so let's say three or four years into it, and I was catching a lot of fish, I got invited to fish what was the the local bus driver's um, annual boat competition. And so me being, even at that age, I was a competitive little toad, there really was. I thought, right, I'm going to try and win this. Now, most of the bus drivers, they would effectively, on the Saturday before of the Sunday fishing, it was always a Sunday that they fished, and they usually fished out of Eyemouth, which was more or less down by the borders. So on the Saturday, they would generally fall into the pub and then fall out of the pub, a little bit worse for wear, 
fall into the fishmongers, maybe by a couple of mackerel for bait or some prawns or something like that, where me, I thought, I knew lugworm was the bait because I you know, I caught a lot of fish on lugworm. I'd be away down the beach digging as many lug as, as the little body could manage at the time. I'd get on the boat and I'd fish well doing that. Now, with this particular day, I remember it, I went down, dug loads of lug, went down in the competition, and lo and behold, I absolutely battered it. I absolutely battered it. In those days, you used to catch a lot of codling about five, six, seven pound. And, and the mainstay of the catches was cod or codling at the time. I remember I caught, and it was catch and kill. That was the other thing then. You, mm-hmm. you retained everything and you had a weigh-in on the shore. And I remember, I remember I'd like, like a builder's bag, absolutely full of cod and a bucket full of cod. Again, I'd be about 12-year-old. And uh, I remember the... The rest of the bus drivers had like one or two little fish each. And when it came to the weigh-in, obviously the kid obviously had more than everybody else. So effectively I won the competition. And the lad that used to take me, a guy called Michael Canane, and Michael says, oh, Stephen, well done. You've, you've won, you've won, you'll get the trophy. And that's all that mattered to me. I wanted that trophy. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't give a toss about trophies these days, but I wanted the trophy. And uh, so lo and behold, I've, I've been told that I've won this competition. This is the bad memory. And then Michael sort of came up to me a bit later. He says, listen, I've got to have a word with you. And I says, well, what is it? What is it? He says, well, because you're not actually a bus driver, (laughs) which I wasn't at that age, and because you're not related, you're a guest, somebody's made a complaint and you can't actually win the competition. I was gutted, absolutely gutted. So some old dude that I wasn't best chuffed about, who'd caught a couple of fish to my however many, ended up getting this horrible little plastic trophy, incidentally, but it wasn't, it wasn't about that. It was about the fact you'd won it. The so spirit of the thing. And it peed me off, you have no idea, for weeks and months. And I often say, people say, how did you get into match fishing? How did you develop that, that sort of angry, got to win at all cost mentality? I put it down to that day that they didn't let me get that horrible little plastic trophy, you know? Um, and for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit of sweet memory, but it's what made me a match fisherman, I think. It's an incredible story because one of the things I was going to ask you, um, and I'm still going to ask you now, is when I first heard about boat fishing competitions, I thought, well, if you get the bottom left-hand corner of the boat, you're going to win. Because every time I've been on the boat, the bottom left-hand corner caught the most fish. Mm. And it was conversations with you over time um, that told me and, and proved to me that, it doesn't really matter where you are. There are obviously benefits of different areas on the boat, but yeah. there's so much more to it than that. And, and you know, match angles will think that pole rigs uh, are complicated and, and that the shotting's got to be spot on on a waggler for it to work properly. But the complexity and the design and development and the reason for a lot of the rigs that top-level boat anglers use, and and now sort of everybody, because you can buy them, can't you? You, you can buy ready-made. I mean, I, I, I bought some black bream rigs from, from the place on the Isle of Wight, and, and they're unbelievably good and effective and don't tangle and, and, and work. It, it's it's such a bonus, and if you're the first one there with it or you 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 know why it's working, it's obvious why people are be- some people are much better than others. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that old adage that you were lucky, weren't you? Like yesterday, yeah. and you've been you're lucky the week before, and, and no, it's luck's got very. It, it does play a part. Let's be honest, Rob of the Green does yeah. does play a part, but for the most part, it's it, it's it's the know how. Yeah. And in the first instance, you're right. The back of the boat, let's not necessarily top left hand corner, either back corner, um, 
is an advantage to an angler who knows what he's doing, particularly when drift fishing. Because if you're drift fishing, so the boat's on the move as opposed to being at anchor, you can, it, depending on what way the drift's going, you, you, your, your tackle's going to be going underneath the boat. And it's not a pleasant way to fish if your gear's going under the boat. If you're in the back corner, you can point your rod either side of the corner so you don't necessarily ever have to be going under the boat. Mm-hmm. That can be an advantage. But, yeah, boat draws... In, in, in certain co- in the higher level competitions, the international competitions, they, they recognize that there is a slight unfair advantage. When everybody's apparently of the same level, it stands to reason that the guy with the best draw is probably going to catch the most fish. Mm-hmm. So what they tend to do in top level competitions is they time the draws and you, you rotate your boat position so you don't stay in the same position, uh, position for the whole event. Um, I hate that, if I'm honest, because you can imagine how cluttered certain boats are and the amount of gear and crap that we cart with us. If you've got to move that all about the boat and it becomes that sort of musical chairs, and it is, it's just like that. Yeah. Everybody charging, trying to move their gear. In like a world championship, for example, it's even worse because half of you don't speak the same language and it's like, oh, and you can imagine it's, it's quite boisterous. I would rather just, you know, pull my, my peg out the bag and fish from there because mm. it is possible to win from any position. Uh, anchor, it's not just as important, particularly if you're up tiding, um, because you can find fish. You can you can hunt fish out on your own. Um, but yeah, and talking about the rigs and stuff, I mean, I'm all about rigs. I mean, you can make them as complicated as you want to. You don't necessarily have to, but there is definitely a time and a place for a little bit more intricate in order to buy a bite, buy an extra fish. For the most part, simple is is key. If you can keep it simple, keep it clean. Fast and efficient, that's the answer. But mm. sometimes when nothing's happening, it's good to have options in your bag. Not everybody will do it. I know, I know some anglers who are incredibly technical and in- incredibly good. I know others whose rigs, honest to God, I would, I, I couldn't use them. I just, I'd, I'd take one look at them and I'd psych <laughs> myself out because they're so horrible. The knots are, oh. but these are guys that you would refer to as guys with good hands. They can still catch fish. They've got a good feel yeah. for fishing. The golden chalice for me is the guy who's got a bit of both. Yeah, Which I would hope yeah. I fall into that category. I don't know, but I, I keep trying. <laughs> the, the other thing as well is bait. And, and whilst I've never been a competitive sea angler in this country, I've fished some tournaments abroad for different kinds of fish than we get here. Yeah. Um, I, I remember oh, probably going back as well, well, when they were cod in the English Channel, going back mm. that far, um, that, that some competitions were actually bait supplied yeah. because anglers would turn up and and people like Alan Yates, for example, and Ron Edwards, people that really, I mean, Yates is another, he's, 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 he'll admit he's too old to, to fish properly off the beach anymore. He's, he's, he's still a good angler, Alan. Oh, fantastic yeah. angler. But he would work a lot, very, very hard to get the right kind of bait. He'd have whites, he'd have yellowtails, he'd have blacks, he'd have whatever bait you needed. Mm. And, and and there we were talking about right, white ragworm, yellowtail lugworm, which are local to Pegwell Bay down in, in, in Kent, black lugworm, which more from the Dungeness end of, 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 of that part of the coastline, although black lugworm were all about. You'd have fresh razor fish, or he'd go out and he'd get razor fish when the tide was right, and and, he, and he'd have those salted or frozen. And... and he would have the best bait. So they said, no, this isn't fair. All these blokes that, that are professional anglers or work in tackle shops or do something, work nights, they've got all day to dig bait. You know, in fact, the other people had all night to dig bait. <laughs> so they, they've got this real advantage. So they were, they were having, like, you turned up and you got two, and, and lugworm is still measured in score, is it, or is it weighed these days? But it's two score a lug and a mackerel. 
depends on the size of the lug. If you're selling them, if it's a big lug, you'll sell them by the pound. If if they ain't, you'll sell, you'll you know the, the shops will sell them by the score. Yeah. Bait, whew, what a minefield that is. But you're spot on. Bait once upon a time was key. I mean, I'll, I'll be absolutely honest with you. I mean, I used to win. There used to be a lot more competitions first and foremost. There ain't so many these days. Um, but I would win so many competitions based on my bait. It wasn't because you were you, you were fantastically knowledgeable or whatever. It's you, your bait was better than a lot of the guys. And living on the coast helps, obviously. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, bait supply came about, apart from removing the advantages, it came about because a lot of the guys that would travel to the competitions lived in land and they weren't able to... It's not that they weren't able, but it was too much of a chore for them to travel for three hours to dig a few worms. And yeah. bait digging in itself, and Alan would tell you this as well, it's to me, it was always part, it was a fundamental part of the game in that you knew the locations, you knew the sizes at the times that these locations would produce, you knew how to gather the bait, you knew how to you know, transport the bait from where you, you dug it or collected it back to the house. You then knew how to look after it. You then had to transport it back in the best of nick if you were talking about live baits. The same with frozen baits, a little bit more work. But bait was hard work. Mm-hmm. But there were so many times I would turn up on a boat. <laughs> I used to do this. <laughs> I shouldn't admit this, but we, we, we used to turn up on the boat. Let's say it was Scrabstone, one of our main locations or main venues for fishing, big competitions in Scotland once upon a time was Scrabstone, which is right up north by Thurzo fishing i was there a couple of weeks ago actually but the fishing generally is consistently good um now when we first started fishing that venue again i'd I'd be just out the junior ranks a lot of the local lads when i say locals these guys were traveling generally from the the highland region from inverness to fish this venue um but they would all use lures now lures are great at certain times i.e clear water when the water's clear and fish can see the lures generally they work quite well and colors and all the rest of it are a different argument but we would go up there and we would consistently get as much as double what the lure guys would get just by using bait, just by using bait. And um, to be honest, you didn't need fancy baits. You just needed a decent bait. So lugworm, mussel and mackerel, the three staples would catch more or less all the fish. But I would go up there and I couldn't help myself. Luckily where we are, there used to be, there still is, but there used to be probably the best white ragworm digging in the UK, bar mm-hmm. none. It was ridiculous. I mean, I've always been a good digger. I'm an animal with a fork. Always have been. And a good and a knife. <laughs> that was a long time ago. And stop it. That's not fair. Um, but anyway, I, I was. I was good on the beach. And back in the day, I could dig probably, when I say whites, I'm talking about big, large king whites or snake whites, which are about 10 inches long wow. and as thick, thick as your thumb. A proper white one. And give you a proper nip as well. No, well, the white one don't. No, no whites don't, more. do they? No, no they, they've got a bulbous head and they tend to yeah. suck more than nip, if you know what I mean, unlike yeah. a red rag one, which has got pincers. But anyway, I could dig a thousands of these in a tide. Now, wow. that is unheard of. Now, I would struggle to dig a hundred because, the, well, global warning, and there's, there's a whole pile of reasons why it doesn't dig like that anymore. But anyway, I'd go up buckets full of these whites, cool boxes full of these whites, and I'd get on the boat and I'd pull this container off white rag out the box you know i'd lay it on the deck and all the anglers are looking around because a lot of them don't have the best of bait i'd pull the top off this container and these gigantic white ones would stare back at them and i could hear them they're going off oh, we've no chance today look at his bait oh never going to win it and then i'd go and win the match with muscle you know <laughs> i'd psych them out completely yeah and 
that, that, that that's quite a vivid example, but that kind of thing still goes on. I bet it goes on in the coast fishing ranks as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, yeah. I used to enjoy that psychological side of it. Um, and then if you knew what you were doing, that bait would still go back home with you if you were able to look after it on the move and it'd go back in the tanks or back in the fridges for when you really did need to use it. But yeah, bait, 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 bait. That's my game. Yeah. How did you get to be an international, Steve? Because it's uh, there obviously are international boat fishing competitions. You see them all over the place. But I, I take it there's a, there was a Scottish Federation of Anglers, maybe a Scottish Federation of Sea Anglers. Yep. Did you have to nominate to them and fish trials? Or, or yeah. what made you want to fish internationally? Well, uh, again, uh, go back to the early the early time when we were fishing with the guys in the bus depot. I progressed from that later on to fishing in local clubs. And the local clubs in and about the Edinburgh area had had some some long-standing Scottish international um, boat and shore anglers. But the boat was the thing that was was really getting my attention. I was really enjoying, even though I still did fish the shore. I still do well. I still did do well. I found it difficult to be able to invest as much time and energy in both. It was one or the other, really. If you were going to try and get you know an international cap, so I saw these guys. And they would go out on a boat trip and they would catch so much more than everybody else. And I thought, you know, I've got to have a piece of that. I've got to try it. So I aspired to be them, basically, in the early days. Got better, then began to threaten them on the, you know, on the club trips, began to get close to them. Every now and again, I would beat one or two of them um, and, and got basically told, that, you know, you should be looking at getting into the international team. And I didn't have a clue. I'm like, well, how do you do that? Um, and as it transpired at that time, you had to, you, you had to apply to be picked or, or to be considered for selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember right, it was 36 months form. So you had to give three years form in open competitions. Um, and, and the circuits were quite big. We, there was loads of local competitions then, but opens all over Scotland. And that's what I did. I think I got picked as a reserve first. Um, and then we had we had the two bodies. So you were right. The Scottish Federation of Sea Anglers was the governing body, and that would pick for the main international team that would represent um, our boat anglers at uh, home nations level and then world level. And you had EFSA Scotland, which is the European Federation. Their sections yeah. would pick their own set, you know, their own section to fish against EFSA England, EFSA wherever the competition was. So I got into both, and um, yeah, I, I got in, and I ended up fishing with the same guys to begin with. Uh, which was good, but it's a steep, steep learning curve. When you start doing well at club level and then you get to domestic level, if you like, and you win a few competitions there, you think you're the bee's knees. You think, oh, you know, I've, I've got this crack. You get to international level and you realise you're first rung in the ladder and you've got to start all over again. Um, and the big thing, I think at international level, the, the hardest thing, not just for me to get, for a lot of people, for to, the, the thing you need to click is that you ain't fishing for yourself anymore. You know, you're not fishing for individual honours. You're fishing now as part of a team. And as I've said to you before, being uber competitive and, you know, working hard to do things, it's sometimes difficult to give up information to your, your colleagues. But I had to learn to do that. You know, information sharing, as you know, it'll be the same for the course guys at, at the level. Absolutely. You need to share information in order to succeed. So I had to get my head around that first. So it wasn't a two-minute process. I had to yeah. go through it. I had to learn. I had to suffer some some really tough, horrible lessons. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But a lot of the lads, I think, that have come through the ranks, they, they can't get over that. It, it really, whether it affects their ego or it destroys their confidence, I find you have to get through that in order to improve. But a lot of guys who had the bad experience early doors have disappeared. 
they're all walking about saying they're Scottish internationals, one time Scottish international and the rest of it, or one time English international. But the guys who've consistently stayed there and done it are, are the guys who are strong between between the years, if you ask me. Yeah, team anglers, yeah. What what's the the best event you fished in? Would it be a world championship or or, or are some of the European events better? Oh, yeah, you know the most prestigious. What's what? What do you consider the most prestigious? Well, the most prestigious event? is the World Championship. There's no yeah. doubt. Now, again, I haven't set the world elite at World Championship level, and never will until they make it an individual event, because it's a five-man team event. And there is an individual aside, if that makes sense. And, and the same as the course event. Everybody so, wants yeah. to be individual world champion. However. If you're in a pool of guys where you have, how do I say this without killing myself here? If Let's just say you haven't got the deepest pool of anglers to select from. So the chances of getting the right five guys, we've got five anglers who could do well at world championship level. The problem is we've probably only got five and those mm-hmm. five are never going to be available as a winner at the same time. So we're always going to have, and, and forgive me for saying this, but we're always going to have weak links at world level. You know, So the world championship events that I've fished, and I've learned absolutely loads. We haven't really been able to follow up on because we can't get the right team of anglers. There is talk that there will be an opportunity in the near future. This was pre-COVID. What happens afterwards, I've no idea. But that there would be an opportunity to fish it as an individual. If that happens, I'll be right back and trying to fish it. Mm. That most prestigious event is probably probably the FSA European Boat Championship. Um, and this is another, <laughs> another bane of my life. I've had the silver medal, the individual silver twice and missed out on the gold. I think I missed out on the gold by one fish two years ago, which <laughs> which killed me. That's, That's one tough. of the reasons I've lost four stone, I'll tell you. Because <laughs> I'll tell you. Four that. stone, wow. Well, yeah, and counting. We've got, we've got a bit to go. But it was out of Weymouth two years ago. And um, what normally happens in the European event is five days fishing. And you've usually got a few days practice on the back of that. Um, so it's, it's quite a, it's quite a grueling schedule, you know? So I'd practice for three or four days. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd actually been a bit of a bad boy because on the, uh, on the Sunday before the event kicks off, there's a parade through the town, wherever the event's getting held this year, it was just happened to be Weymouth. There's what we come out. I've, I've told you this before. This is the, the badger parade where everybody gets dressed up in the, the you know, in the, the flannels and the, the blazer mm-hmm. and, um, in your teams, you basically carry your team flag and you march through the town and make a, a complete spectacle of yourself. I hate it. I absolutely despise it because nobody knows what's going on. There's just these, these generally these groups of middle-aged guys and blazers stomping about the high street. And I thought, oh, gee. So anyway, I usually make my excuses. I hold my hand up now, you know. I usually make my excuses not to do it. I'll look after the bait, guys. I'll look after the bait. Well, I, honestly, this this was hysterical. So the guys are all assembling on the quayside for this for this do, you know, this badger parade as we call it, um, in that event. And I'm on a charter boat with my pal. I'm lying flat on the deck as we as we're sailing past them to go out, and I'm going out for an extra day's practice, haven't I? So we went, we went out, and all the guys in the blazers, and I'm trying. They, the guys in the team know I'm on this boat, incidentally, but I'm trying not to make a spectacle in front of all the the other visiting nations, as it were. Mm. Anyway, on the back of that, we, we, I've done my practice, I've come back, and I did share all the information, incidentally, that I picked up that day. It's five days fishing. Now, previously, the five days were split into two events. So two days are light line fishing, and that's one event, European light line class, and the, the next three days are the actual European Boat Championship proper. And Weymouth two years ago and thereafter, they made it even harder than normal, and they put the five days together. 
So you've got to score over five days. And that's bloody tough when oh, yeah. draws come into it. And draws not just in terms of your position on the boat, the actual boat you draw. Because mm. in a big event where you've got 100 plus anglers, let's say, you're only going to have so many top boats and you're going to have to accommodate everybody else on boats, perhaps from outside the area, who won't know the marks just as well, won't know the tides just as well. And luckily, look, Weymouth, the skippers are good at sharing information. So you could argue there's no such thing as a terrible draw, but there's definitely better draws in terms of the boats. Anyway, so I went out and I fished the five days. I'd done quite well. Three days into the event, I was shattered. I was absolutely knackered. I was coming in at night, and normally I spend two or three hours on my gear, sort my gear out, get my box ready, change anything that needs changing on my reels and rods, blah, 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 for the following day. Um, but I was coming in, and I was saying to my mate, George, who, who, who we roomed together for this thing, I was saying to George, I've got to go to bed. He's saying, you're, you're mad. I said, no, no, I'm knackered. I've got to go to bed. And he's like, you're joking. I said, no, 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 I've, I've got to sleep. I need to sleep. Otherwise, I ain't gonna. I probably won't even get out of my bed. I won't function tomorrow. But anyway, I did that, and I struggled through the last two days. I still scored well. But I knew that it was a tough ask to get the, the gold medal, but it was, it was doable. But it was only a fish, maybe two fish, that would have done it in terms of the percentages that I needed to get over the line. So on the back of that, I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really work on my fitness. I mean, I'm 53 now. You know, I've been, I've been fishing in international events since, since I was 21. And I thought, you ain't getting away with this anymore. You know, you're carrying too much weight. You've got to work on your fitness. Hence the reason I've, I've done it for now. Um, whether it helps or not, I don't know, but I feel a bit better and I seem to be sleeping a bit better, but, but yeah. Yeah. So that was the story of the, the Weymouth event. Yeah. In terms of prestige, I would say that that event, it's, it's a monkey on my back. I would like to win it. Yeah. And this year it's scheduled for, um, Cork Harbor in Ireland. Oh yeah. Beautiful um, fish. It's beautiful. Yeah. Fishing, right? I've all, I've already been over for a practice when it was, yeah. early, so I've done my homework on the venue. I knew the venue quite well prior to that, but I just hope it happens now because um, there's every chance they might turn around and say near the event, look, it can't go ahead. In which yeah. case, I'll just have to store the information until the next time. But yeah, I'd oh. like to win that and just get it done and then I can probably retire. I actually, <laughs> I actually fished here a couple of years ago. We, we filmed there for tight lines and uh, we caught plenty of fish. We failed on the shark. Yeah. Um, there was no shortage of mackerel of all sizes. Um, we had a couple of days bass fishing. Um, mackerel, uh, mullet, I had a go at some mullet as well with the bread and then a few weeks after that, um, trawlers went in there and took 1.4 tonnes of mullet out. So I don't think yeah. they've recovered yet from that. Um, but that's that's another story. You, you mentioned their percentages. Mm. And if as, as briefly and as effectively as you can, explain to us what you mean by percentages when you're fishing on a boat. For, okay. This is comp competitive, obviously. Yeah, it, it, it varies, but... but... In a nutshell, catch and kill doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. So effectively, you, you score points and you put the fish back alive. Yeah, um, And what happens is the scorer or the skipper or, or both have a, a scorecard where they tally everybody's fish up. So in simple terms, if I catch 100 fish and you catch 90 fish, my finishing percentage at the end of the day is 100% and you'd be 90%. So, so that's the percentage. Yeah you would carry into the following day. Yeah. So a perfect percentage in a two-day event would be 200%. Yeah. Right? So effectively, the boat winner's score is 100% and everybody else is a percentage of that score. That's a great way of doing things, That's isn't it? It is a good way of doing things. And, and it's what I'll tell you what it prevents. Back in the day when there was top boats and it was weight only, your top 10 anglers could come off one boat one in a 10-boat yeah. competition. And that was never fair, no. you know, because you'd have a cracking angler who'd done really well to catch half a dozen fish on a boat 
against a boat where the top the top bag was 30 odd fish and he would get absolutely nothing for it so in the same way that zones work you know in the coast fishing world and in the in the shore fishing world that's the way they've tried to apply it on the boat it's the fairest system yeah, that definitely. That sounds. I've always wondered because I've seen, you know, when I've looked at the results, I've seen the percentages, and somebody with three hundred and seven percent. They worked that out, yeah. and and I guessed it was something to do with the the, the top catch, but yeah. I didn't know, didn't quite know how you how you worked out. So that that's that's um yeah that's really good. What, what do you what do you Point think? Systems. Is, yeah, it's a very good system. based on percentage or yes. Something else entirely, and you get some ludicrous point systems, yeah. and you get some really good ones. For me, the best point system I ever fished, and a lot of people don't like this, but no size limits and mm -hmm. one point of fish. So yeah. if you caught a 50 oh, really? pound soap, yeah, yeah, and I caught a one inch blenny, one point, lovely, love that. <laughs> I'll, yeah. just, I'll just use small coarse fishing hooks and just batter small fish all day long. Um, that's real match fishing. Other ones would award you the European point system is you're only allowed to catch 10 of each species. And mm -hmm. then you've got a decision to make. If you're the first guy to catch 10, then you want to change and try yeah. and target something else. So let's say it was 10 bream. What happens is you get full points for the first five of that 10 and then a single point for the next five. So let's say a bream was worth, your first five bream were worth four points. When you get to five even, you've got a decision to make. Because if a garfish is worth three points and there's garfish jumping about on the surface or you can see them flashing about just under the surface, you might want to think, well, I tell you what, I'm not going to target my sixth bream, which is only one point. I'm going to have some of these three-point garfish. Yeah. So your brain has to be in gear all the time because you need to time those changes. And that's something that you'll only learn by hard experience yeah. and experience of the venue or by keeping your eyes and ears open. But if you're watching what somebody else is doing, generally you're falling behind. It's interesting what you said there about, about the points and the blenny equals a tope when it's only one. Mm. In the old days of world championship, course fishing world championship, they did sort of an amalgam of that and they counted the number of fish and then weighed them. Yep. So so both counted, if you like. It, yeah. There was there was a, an equation that balanced the two to give you a, a score at the end, yeah. which which was quite interesting. Um, sounds, I mean, that sounds like an ideal system, but unfortunately on a boat, that causes a problem. Having, you know, yeah. having to retain fish and then weigh them. And Can you imagine long rods on a boat are a pain in the bum? Can you imagine keeping mm. nets everywhere? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or whatnot, you know, or, or the clutter of, like, fish bins all over the boat. Exactly, so, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you wouldn't want to retain the fish, and it's much easier, as you say, on a bank stick, stick keeping it out and yeah. tip them in. But in those days, they didn't. nothing nothing was kept anyway. I'm, I'm, this, this goes predates in the 1970s and before, where yeah. in course fishing, you, you, you were given, no keep nets were allowed. You were given um, a, 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 a bin liner bag, basically, and when you got to your peg, there was a loop that you fitted the bin liner bag in, Right. And there was a geezer sitting behind you, with, and it was always a geezer, with a pencil and a bit of paper, and he'd tick off the number of fish you caught, and then they'd come round at the end, count them to make sure you'd not slipped any in while he wasn't looking that you might have taken with you in your bag, because they're all yeah. dead anyway, didn't know yeah, yeah. how long they'd been dead, um, and then they'd weigh them. So that, yeah. that was, that was uh, an interesting tactic. So, so what, what do you consider is your best ever result? And And... You know, I've, I've I've won a few competitions and I've been second second on a lot. Uh, but but there is still there, there there must be days when you think I honestly don't think I could have done any better than today. Yeah, again, there's a few. But I, I've said this before. I, I, the one that sticks out for me. Remember, I'm I'm a hairy jock from the north, but 
if I go down to the South Coast and do well on the South Coast, that once upon a time was unheard of. So the one that sticks out, that the first big one I won was the English Boat Championship, the FC English Boat Championship out of Weymouth. I think it was a two-day event at the time. Um, and it was really, really tough from a cod basher from the north to make any impression on the south coast because you can imagine the variances in the tackle. We were 4050 hooks and yeah, the equivalent of 30 pound mono to the hook. Whereas down there, you were working on a size two, was a big hook mm-hmm. um, when we were bream fishing generally. Um, but to go down there and be able to exploit the bream for in the first instance, the bream and the gars, and then switch things up and, and go and catch the blonde rays out on the banks. Um, I won, I think I won both days down there. I, I can't, it's, it's about 2000 now or 99. I can't remember, but that was the first one that I really thought, do you know what? I worked my socks off for two days. I was, it was a bit like when I used to do a, a good tight lines. I used to come off, come off the show with a, the migraine because yeah. I'd been thinking and constant, especially remember when it was live and you yeah. had to, you didn't know what was coming and you're thinking, you're thinking, and you're trying to make sure that you give the best answer you can give. Well, I remember that event. And you're and sitting looking at me. <laughs> I remember that event and I remember I remember thinking right what am I going to do now when am I going to change do I go to the big hook the small hook do I cast into the rocks do I risk snagging up do I keep it tight what do I do do I switch all of that and that was non-stop for eight hours for two days and I remember I remember coming off the boat at the end of the second day and I had a good idea that I'd, I was up there or had won it and it wasn't until somebody had come along and said and I think it was Neil Bryant and said to me you know you've won this Sure, you've won this. And I was like, well, thank God, because my head is pounding. I had the mm. worst migraine that I'd ever had. And I knew that my brain had been in gear because of that. But yeah, if, if I had to highlight one, I would say that one just because it was the South Coast. And of course, mm. I've, done, I've done pretty well on the South Coast since then. But that was, it probably gave me the, the enthusiasm to go down and, and, and have another go. Because a lot of our guys in the past had gone down there, been absolutely destroyed but hadn't come back stronger for the experience. You know, instead of coming back and saying, well, look, I did this wrong and I did that wrong. You know, what am I going to change? Go back and have another bash. Keep getting, you know, dusting yourself down and keep getting back. Most of them would just disappear. Yeah, no, uh, like Dennis White and the Lancaster Canal. I'm going no more to Preston. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I was of the mentality that I was like, well, bugger you. I'm going back and I'm going to have another go and I'm going to have another go. And eventually persistence pays off, doesn't it? It's- yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. so you, you mentioned Scrabster and, 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 and I know you've enjoyed your fishing there and I know several places where you've enjoyed your fishing, even north of there. Where's the favourite place you fished? What What is your, if you, if you, I'm not going to say if you could only go to one place ever again, where would you go? But what's the, what's your best destination? Please don't hold me to one because, you know, I struggle with this. I really do. And at risk of repeating myself, I'm, I'm going to give you two. So in the, the opposite ends of the, the UK, we've talked about Weymouth and that remains a favourite. Mm. In England, if I could fish one venue, it would be Weymouth. So versatile. So you you, you, you can go out and, and, and you, I mean, I've, I've fished a, a fair bit from Weymouth. Not yeah. oh, a dozen times maybe. And... Unless you prearrange it, you never know what the target's going to be on the day because that's, there is everything. You can go wrecking, you can go in the rip, you, yeah. Portland race, you can go uh, breaming, all sorts. And, and you're fishing for bream and, and suddenly you're, I mean, I've, I've not done this, although I've tried to do it. I've watched one boat lose seven poor beagle shark that have been yeah. taking the bream. So yeah. you know, I've, I've seen pilot whales performing there now. They've got tuna fiddling about not far offshore. Or maybe not this time of year but coming up to this time of year there's so much scope at Weymouth 
Yeah. So, yeah, but whereas in terms of diversity, people, I might go negligence loads of cod, but you know. Yeah, but it's, it's incredible. And not just because of the fishing, there's so many things. Logistically, it's a great venue. The boats are superb. The charter yeah. fleet is superb. The skippers, by and large, are superb. Mm. You know, and they will accommodate you. The accommodation's great. Everything about it is just built towards a good quality fishing experience. My but second favourite fish and chip shop under the bridge. I know, I try and stay out there these days. (laughs) 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 Yeah, Scotland, so my home venue, even though it's a long way away from home, would be the Western Isles, would be West Loch Roig or Carloway on the west side of the Isle of Lewis. Um, If there's only one venue in Scotland that that I could go to, if that was it, if that was your last trip, that was where I would go, without a doubt. I try and go every year. I've won the Stornoway competition. They call it the Stornoway competition, but it's on exactly the opposite side of the island. The Stornoway is just where the ferry goes. Um, But I've won it a good few times, and it's a damn hard competition to win. You're out, you go out of West Loch Roig, basically into the the Atlantic, as it were. And again, the variety there is incredible. Um, Fantastic haddock fishing, some of the best ray fishing you will see anywhere but not ray fishing as, as the way the world would understand that most ray fishing, most productive ray fishing is done at anchor. Now there, there's, there's a really sneaky tactic that I'm not going to talk about too much, but there's a really sneaky tactic on the drift for catching rays. Really? And if you master that tactic, you can double and treble shot on good quality rays all day long. No thornbacks. Yeah, yeah, thornback. Majority thornbacks, you, you do get a, quite a few spotted, quite a few small mm. spotted. You get the odd blonde um, and you got a few cuckoo rays as well, which tend to turn oh. up every now and again. So it's a good mix of rays. But it's honestly, it's it's. I'll tell you a bit about the method. It's it's one I of these would. <laughs> it might be lies, though. You know. <laughs> I know it will be. <laughs> I'm not one for bum steers these days. But but generally, I fish overweight. So if you can get away with a pound of lead, let's just for the argument's sake, a pound of lead, it's better to fish with a pound and a quarter just to try and nail it to the bottom, right? And you do drift quite quick, and that's that's one of the keys. You want to cover quite a lot of ground to be able to find the rays. But rays, being cartilaginous like dogfish, are slow-moving beasts. They tend to latch onto the scent trail and then work their way up the scent trail till they find it. Now, obviously, if you're moving really quickly and dragging your bait away from them, that sort of is counterproductive. So the key, basically, is to nail it to the bottom and then try and pay out line and free spool to match the speed that the boat's drifting at. It's quite difficult to do, but you're paying out line at the same speed as the boat's drifting. But once you get it, it's so effective. It is ridiculous. And a ray bite, you can't miss a ray bite. A ray bite's like a clump, thump, thump, thump. Often it's landing on the bait first and then positioning itself, you know, to to, to reach its mouth. But once you do that, what I've always done there, (laughs) and I hope hope the opposition's not listening, but what I often do there is I'll get one in and I'll watch them. It's a three-hook event, right? So I'm fishing three big baits nailed to the bottom. And I watch the opposition, I watch the ray bite, I watch the the little bit of slack line, then the strike, and then they wind in a single ray. I try to wind in two and three every drop. So I'll leave that dude on there because when he's on and he's banging, for whatever reason, it attracts other fish. Yeah. And I try and do that. And again, that's just one of the one of the benefits of, of, of Carloway. I'm talking about the west side of Lewis. But there's so many other species, loads of gunners, loads of pollock, sometimes loads of cod. Oh, it, it's, it's just such a diverse venue. I mean, I like volume, you know, yeah. but I don't, I don't just like one species. I like to go, it's the old John Virgo, catch as many fish as you can. You know, I've never been big on, I, I wouldn't call myself a specimen hunter. I've caught my fair share of big fish, but nine times out of 10, I haven't went and targeted a big fish. 
You know, mm. I've gone out and I've just hammered the volume and I've picked off the big ones as they come along. It's the old adage, isn't it? You can catch a big fish with a small hook, but it's not so, it's not so easy to catch a small fish with a big hook. Absolutely. Catch them all, is what I say. Exactly. Yeah. What was your favourite fish? Uh, oh, this is going to make you laugh as well. My favourite fish. <laughs> Please don't slaughter me for this. No, this no, no. It's the humble dogfish. Really? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the I, old I LSD. Dog. I love them. Most people hate them. You, you speak you speak to Dave Lewis and they go, oh, dogfish, blah, blah, blah. You speak to Mike Thrussell, oh, bloody dogfish, blah, blah, blah. And I get that. I get that if it's not your bag. But if you're a match fisherman and you're on a venue where there's a lot of dogfish, Holyhead would be a perfect example. North Wales, anywhere in North Wales, right? Millions of bloody dogfish. Love them, right? I love hammering them out three at a time. Now, I've, went, I've, I've done various publicity trips for um, the, the tackle companies that we've been allied to over the years, right? And a lot of the guests that come along, they go and in, in, in their sites, they've got a nice big tope, a nice big ray or whatever. Me, I just want the dogs. I want the dogs. And it's just important to me to be able to work on my speed, my rhythm and my organization. And if I'm hammering out dogs three at a time and speed, we used to call it speed fishing. I would refer to it more as rhythm fishing because you, effectively when it's on, you cast out, your lead will hit the bottom. As soon as it hits the bottom, you'll give a little bit slack line to bow it, right? To get the bow, if it's a grip, let's say, to get it to take. As soon as you've done that, you'll begin to get a bite. That's how it works. The dogs are on it right away. I'll stand on my rod butt until the thing is bouncing all over the place. While it's doing that, I ain't paying attention to the bites. I know the fish are there. I'll be baiting up my second rig. As soon as I've baited up my second rig, I'll wind in the first rig, I'll clip it off, drop it down. Hopefully there's three fish on it. I'm not even looking at those fish at that point. Next rig's out in the water, same same rules apply. Hit the water a little bit, hit the bottom, slack line, stand on the rod butt, then deal with my three fish, get my points scored, get my three fish back. And I like to do that for eight hours without relent, just all day, bang, 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 bang. And based on my numbers, I mean, a good, a good day's doggy bashing is probably 120 to 100, 130 dogs to frame on a boat where it's happening. That's my kind of fishing, and that's hard work. And luckily these days, that's all catch and release because it didn't used to be. And I remember there used to be complaints. Oh, look, we've had this competition. And they used to provide skips for people to throw the fish in. They didn't want. I mean, that was just, and I'm going, I'm, 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 I'm recent history. I'm, I'm not talking about the last 10 years, but but it's not been that long since catch and release, even on the shore, has been the order of the day. No, it still isn't in some cases. And, you know, but but it, it, look, well, I suppose luckily, but perhaps because of, there's not as many fish around in a lot of areas or lo- certain kinds of fish as there used to be. There's certainly more of some species. I've never known so many rays. Um, yeah, absolutely. Wherever you go. I mean, you know, our mate John Popplewell, he's caught rays every month of the year off without, without going more than sort of five miles radius of his front door. Which which is it? unbelievable on the East Coast. So, yeah, but you're, you're right about that, though. I mean, I'm not proud of that because a lot of us that have been in the game a long while, we were part of that. You know, we, we did that. We didn't know any better back then. No, but it wasn't wrong then, Steve. Was it? You know, it, it and, and I know it was, but but you know, it, it wasn't wrong because it was it was how you did things and and and, and styles and customs and what's right and what's wrong changes. Oh, absolutely. Over I, the, the months, years and centuries, doesn't it? I'll tell you why I, I carry a bit of guilt about that. And, and, I, and I try and, uh, you listen, I ain't perfect, but I try and preach the right messages going forward is that it did get dumped and skipped. 
and sometimes it got dumped in the harbour at the end of the at the end yeah. of the event. Now a lot of that fish was good eating fish, and nothing was done with it. Mm. So at least we could have done something to make sure that fish went somewhere and served a purpose rather than yep. just becoming you know crab food. Yep. Um, and spur dogs were the worst in Scotland on the west coast of Scotland in the early days, round about Port Patrick and Ayr. There was massive shoals of spur dogs. I mean tremendous you would be winding in a spur dog and as you're winding it up there's another six following it to the side of the boat i've seen that little hampton yeah. ah well, well to be fair I, I used to win competitions by doing exactly that you know i'd wait till they were winding fish up and everybody else was going to the bottom i would just go under the boat and hold it because the spurs were all following the other spurs mm. and in terms of time i was in in and out of the water so much so, so more often than everybody else and it was a good tactic for winning comps but they decimated the shoals absolutely decimated to the extent that a spur dog not so much now because they've come back, but for a period, we're, we're an absolute rarity. You never saw them. Now they're back to pest proportions, you know. But um, no, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It, it, attitudes and, and habits change and, and, and catch and release is a good thing. This, this, this is apropos of nothing, but you mentioned spur dogs and, and how slow they are to recover. And it's taken this time for them to come back. That the, There was a massive spur dog off the coast of Massachusetts. Right. And somebody said, well, they eat those in England. They call them rock salmon. <laughs> so they set up a commercial spur dog fishery. Yeah. It lasted 10 years and they became endangered. Stocks were down to 1% of what yeah. they had been because if evaporates, they give birth to life young. They don't give birth to many live young. Yeah. And, and it takes a long, they're not like cod that lay 2 million eggs. And, and look how short cod are, yeah. but th th they're not like that. So, yeah, protecting spur dogs. And, and I, I used to read reports, oh, this boat came back with 2,000 pound of spur dog from Northampton. Well, they're not going to be eaten. And, no. and, 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 but luckily... In course, fish, no pike was hardly a pike was thrown back before 1965. You know, virtually everything was catch, took it home, and if you didn't eat it, you fed it to the cat. So, <laughs> spur dogs are your favourite fish. If you could not spur dogs, LSD. Uh, sorry, LSD. <laughs> lesser spotted dogfish. But have you got a bucket list fish? And I, I know you've spoken to me loads of times about when I've been gagging on about tarpon. And, and, and yeah. if, if if you could go anywhere and, and fish for one species, what would that be? Do you think? Don't say Holly hadn't. Listen, there's so many fish. I've never caught a tarpon, and you you know how I'm adverse to flying. I hate it. Mm. Um, but braver these days. Um, and as as I walk, as as the boat competitions disappear, and I'm beginning to find myself at a loose end. Who knows? We might go over and do a bit of that. Um, if there's one fish that I could catch in our waters, I'd love to catch a thresher. Yeah. I love to. Catch. I've never caught one. I've seen them. I've seen them jump yep. in. I've seen other people hook them. I've um, never even seen one, Keith. Oh, I, I caught one off off Montauk, Long Island, New York, right. um, and it was one of the most emotional fishing experiences I've ever had. It was in a competition. I was fishing against an American bloke who held 164 world records over time. A bloke called Herb Ratner, Herb the Rat, and <laughs> and he was beating me because he was like you. He was extremely competitive. And this was a friendly shark fishing event, but he, there was nothing friendly about him. Like if the shark came close to the boat, he would grab the pitch bait rod, even if it was my turn. Um, okay. And and I, I lost a I like mako. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was good enough, but I lost a mako at the back of the boat. You know, it jumped and I got it right. It was only a little, little fish, 150 pounds maybe. I got it to the back of the boat and it fell off just before the leader uh. could be grabbed. And then with no more than half an hour of competition to go, I hooked a thresher. I watched it come up and I was using quite an illegal bait. It was a six pound um, striped bass. Oh, you bad man. Uh, that I was fishing live about 80 yards behind the boat. And I saw 
this t- and I'd, I'd seen what I thought was a thresher the day before, and it was a sunfish. And the molar molar and Ed Dorsal fin looks a bit like a thresher's tail. Yeah, and yeah. I got berated. Right, oh, it's a shark, shark. That's a sunfish. Anyway, this I, I said, oh, it's another sunfish. That's a thrasher. That's a that's thrashers. This, <laughs> and this thing thrashed my, chased my um, live bait across the surface. Right. And that's it, because they've got tiny mouths for their size. Yeah, yeah. And they give me loads and loads of time. And all the time on the set, and Andy Story was filming it. So he's in the boat. So it's all been recorded for tight lines. And I'll set the hook and it skyrocketed up into the air in slow motion. It sort of went up like 30, 40 years ago, George Graham going up for a header. It went up and he stayed <laughs> in the air, you know. And, and and when I got it, it took me 27 minutes to get to the back of the boat, stand up 50 pound gear. And, and the mate, it was it was around 16 feet long, half and half tail and shark. And and it looked at me with this 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 baleful eye, that beautiful copper colour that I get. It's like they're, they're, they're covered in polished copper when they're lit up. What right. a fantastic fish. I don't blame you, mate, for wanting to catch one. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that eye thing, it was, it was the same, though, maybe not quite the same, but when I first caught my first few big skate, they look at you and, and, mm. and there's a prehistoric something. Yes. There's something very primal about the way they look at you. and They don't I like always, you. Yeah? Say they again. don't like you, mate. They don't no, no, look no. at you like that. They don't like you. Oh, well, I, I, I don't think I would like to be dragged out, you know, <laughs> my environment either. But it was the same thing. And I always felt quite humbled by that experience on the skate because you would look at this thing and you were told the age of these things. Sometimes they were older than you. Yeah. And you were thinking, I've got no right to drag that out. And all you wanted to do was to get it back in the get water. Get it back in the water, yeah. With the thresher, I would love that experience. You Just, just to be able to visualise that as something. Mm. Um, but just to catch one and say, I've done it. I wouldn't need to do it again. I don't. I don't just do it once to be. You yeah. know. Yeah. Bucket list fish, definitely. Yeah, that's that's a really good choice. I I, I really like that. Um, now I know you you work for a long time designing rods and reels for Daiwa, for pure fishing and other people. And, yeah. and the only rods I take, I, I stopped going to Florida now for obvious reasons. But um, when I was going to Florida, the only rods I took were Super Kentuckys, the three piece ones, which were you know part of your and. and no money and 120 quid or whatever they finished up and 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 I'd be catching sort of 150 pound tarpon on the 12 pound test Brilliant rods just unbelievable it, rods but if, if and I know you use very very wide choice of rods for seafood what's the what do you think is the best rod you've ever used oh I, I can answer that easily and uh Daiwa rod yeah um I'm hearing rumors that they're still on the go it's the, it's the Daiwa Tournament boat rod. They've now been rebranded as the Saltiga boat rod, the 1230. Oh, yeah. 1230 oh, the TD, TDB? Uh, no, that, that was the old Team Daiwa. This That's is it. TDX you're talking about. Yeah, but yeah. the Team Daiwa boat rod, yeah. It, no, it was, it, it carried well, the same... That's because I've got one of those over there, a TDB. They, they are <laughs> TDB a stunning rod still. Yeah. To this day, that is a cult rod and it's a stunning rod. But, but the, 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 well, they or we at the time adopted the 1230 rating but what I wanted was a slightly different rod. If you remember, the TDB rod was very supple in the tip. Yes. Lots of guts, a nice compliant middle section, but very supple in the tip, yep. um, which, again, lent itself to a range of uptiders later on mm. that would follow the same blueprint, if you like. But the um, the tournament rod, or now the Saltiga boat rod, very, very different in that it is absolutely rigid at the bottom. It's made from um, the X45 carbon. Wow. This is not a sales pitch here, incidentally. So anti-twist. So it don't twist. There is no yeah. corkscrew in that rod at all. Very stiff in the middle as well, but with a compliant tip. Mm. 
it's a little bit longer as well. It's just a little bit over eight feet. As as I recall, the TDB was seven foot ten, I think. Yes, going back. That's right. um, but the reason that that those design specifics were put in place, and it took about best part of two years to get that rod right. There was a lot of prototype stages going through it, and a little bit of to and fro, and a bit a bit of uncertainty at base when we were trying to push that design. You know, I'm saying, look, this is what we want. <laughs> you shouting at the rod designer? Well, no, it was just just small adjustments all the time, just yeah. small adjustments. But I wanted, a, I got fed up getting on a boat and having a quiver or a rod bag with full of rod, like a bloody golf bag. I got fed up of it, right? And one of the reasons for doing that or, or the necessities to have these options were the lead spectrum. So depending on the venue, depending on the tides and, and the array of tides on any given day, you might be working with four ounces of lead one minute and be on two pound of lead the next, right? And that requires a variance in your rods, you know? But I wanted a rod that retained brilliant bite detection, and that was aided by the X45 carbon because it's a very linear, it, 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 it don't twist everything. The tip amplification was brilliant. But I wanted a, a rod that was as comfortable on six and eight ounces as it was on a pound and a half without mm. having to change rods. And that is the rod that Thanks does it. Doing it does. I can bait fish with it, Keith. I can cast with that rod. I can, I can retrieve pollock fishing. I can do loads. I can stick a fixed spool on it. I can use a multiplier. I can use um, a fluorocarbon mainline. I can use a braid mainline, whatever. That rod for me is the the rod. And mm-hmm. until I get around to designing a better one, I'm stuck on that rod to this day. So, you, yeah. you mentioned fluorocarbon, then, and, and our seas generally are a bit more coloured than, than um, the Gulf Stream and, and, and places where the water's warmer, although there's some beautiful clear water on the west coast of Scotland with that little lick of, of Gulf Stream it gets there. How important do you think is fluorocarbon? Do you, th- you think fluorocarbon leaders and traces and snoods make a difference? Depends where you are and depends what you're fishing for. Um, you, you almost hit the nail on the head with the clear water scenario. So if it's clear water, um, finicky fish, bream, perfect example, then fluorocarbon definitely helps. Definitely helps. Yeah. If we're talking about fl- fluorocarbon hook lens yes. uh, in this instance, definitely. Um, sometimes pollock fishing in shallow water, again, sight fishing, then and, 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 uh, when, when fish can see the lures and, and it's about lures more than bait, then fluorocarbon definitely comes into play. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a big part of my game, but also fluorocarbon main lines or mm. more accurately, fluorocoated main lines because if you look at the Italians, who, when it comes to match fishing, the higher echelons of match fishing, the Italians are uber technical and at the top of the tree, and everybody else generally follows them. You know, sooner or later, we follow them. And they, it, you would think everybody was on braid these days on the boat, but they're not. A lot of people are on braid, uh, and, and Joe Bloggs and, and all the rest are on braid, but a lot of the top guys have their braid reels, but they also have fluorocarbon. Um, mm-hmm. Just, how would we call it, managed stretch. In, in, in the lines, you yep. know, so they're generally on oh, stuff exactly different rods, you, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and I, I use a fluorocarbon mainline for a lot of things, yeah. you know, I, I enjoy pollock fishing. It builds in a bit of inherent buffer without the need to tie leaders on and all the rest of it, provided I ain't casting silly leads about. Um, perking as well. I, I, I've still got a bit of the crudeness about me. Like I, I still like pulling a perk up and down every now and again. And in deep water, the merits of braid go without saying. In not so deep water, where you're casting smaller jigs about, you don't bump as many fish on a fluorocarbon mainline. Oh yeah, or a fluorocoated mainline. So my yeah, last, every fish counts. 
my last three years in, in Florida, I used um, 20 pound um, fluorocarbon mainline for tarpon fishing and 12 pound for yellowtail and, and yep. mutton snapper fishing. And it's unbelievable. The diff- I, I can feel tarpon bites, you know, 150 pound fish think it's going to pull you in on the bite. They're the most subtle takes you could ever imagine yep. because your line's drifting out at, at, at three knots and they just pick you up and swim a little bit with it. So, you know, you got might have 80 yards of line out before you get a hit. So yep. the hits are really subtle and on nylon, you, you miss them because some of the nylon's floating on the yep. top and it sinks down as an angle. Fluorocarbon goes down straight to the hook and I could feel, I could tell you whether it was a snapper or a tarpon before I'd put the bailing, before yeah. I'd, I'd um, put the, the reeling gear, fishing yeah. a lever drag. And and that, that was incredible for me. So um, yeah. if, if what's, what's your best advice to someone that wants, that, that, that goes boat fishing, they go out regularly and they, they quite enjoy it, but they could do more. What, what would be your best advice? Well, the, the advice that everybody will give you, and I don't necessarily agree with it all the time, is keep it simple. You know, I mean, everybody says, keep it simple, keep it simple, but keep what simple. You've got to know what to do. I would say that the best thing you can do is learn one or two different knots. I'll give you a scenario here. Scott Gibson, who is, is my fishing partner these days. Now, Scott, when he came through, was always going to be a good angler. Great work ethic, which is important. Um, it was a, was a good club angler, but aspired to be a good match stroke international match angler. Um, the first time Scott and I got together, he's a little bit younger than me, his, his rigs were okay, but they were basic. His options were okay, but he didn't have very many of them. And, I, and Scott says, oh, I've got to buy this and I've got to buy that. And how do I do this? And I, I said, Scott, the first thing you need to do is learn more than one knot. <laughs> you need to learn more than one knot. So he knew a grinner? Um, yeah. A version of the Grinner, which I can't obviously <laughs> demonstrate, but it's yeah. very, very similar. In other words, the tag end points up the line, yeah, rather yes. than out at yeah. right angles. Yeah. But the thing was, you know, people can buy all these fancy components, and, and there's a place for fancy components, swivels and hooks and clips and this and that and all the rest of it. And sometimes you can do a better job just with the right knot. You don't need all these third-party, you know, intermediate yeah. components for everything. So good rigs uncomplicated rigs, but learn to tie some decent knots that allow you to be a bit more versatile in your rig tying. You know, I mean, learn a decent loop knot, learn a decent leader knot. Learn, Name learn a couple. couple Say again? Name a couple. Because um, they're well, all on example, YouTube these days. Yeah, well, yeah, they are. You can research them all. My, my, my favourite knot, bar none, for a leader is the FG, because mm. most of the time I'm using um, braid to, to a monofluorocarbon leader. And again... There's good ways to tie this and there's bad ways to tie it. Learn to tie it in your hands is what I was saying. There's a couple of videos out there that make the tying of that knot so much more uncomplicated mm. rather than a lot of the time they talk about having tension on the line, so threading it through the eyes of your rod and doing it that way. If you can learn to tie it in your hands, it's, it's a brilliant knot and much, much quicker as well. Took me a bit of practice, but that's, that's one leader knot I think every braid angler should know. Um, the knot that I use off the top of my head, I've just called it a Stevie knot for years and I've, I've demoed it at God knows how many shows, but I think it's called a Turrell knot. It's oh, yeah. a version of... Very old-fashioned knot. Absolutely. It's a version old. of the old... Remember, the, it's like a nail knot with not as many turns yeah. or a grinner with two turns less. Yeah. The beauty of that knot, I'll tell you the beauty of this knot, is apart from the fact that it snugs up, if you tie it right and you turn the knot over as you tighten it right at the end, you'll see the knot turn over and bite properly. Mm. That knot it's not a bait buster. So if you're threading up bait above the eye of the hook, 
the tag end points up the line. So it ain't bursting your bait. It's not horrible. It doesn't leave a horrible pig's tail. So I'm I'm neurotic about these things. It does my head in. Um, It stands off perfectly from a swivel as well to give you that. It's almost like a natural start. I don't use tubing to form standoffs. A lot of people tie the line to a swivel and then stick a bit of tubing over the end of the swivel to give you standoff. If you tie this knot perfectly, you don't need a bit of tubing, which does mm-hmm. bugger all, to be honest, other than weight that's moved down sometimes. Um, things like that. So, yeah, the, the old turtle knot that I use, um, I use a full blood knot quite a lot. Now, a lot of people, when they're forming droppers, will use either a water knot or the, the, the blood loop knot. Often, instead of just forming a loop in the line, I will cut the two lines and thread them back through the same hole in the line as I wrap them either end of each other, and yeah. I'll have the line coming off one coming out left and one coming out right, that gives you a lovely standoff as well for certain yeah. things. It's also a little bit stronger. The water knot's stronger again, but it's not the presentation ain't so good on a water knot sometimes, especially when you're going to slightly heavier lines because it's hard to get a water knot to bite up really tight. I find. Yeah, it, it tends to twist, doesn't it, within it's, the knot? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's ugly. It's an ugly knot. Still effective, still strong, but looks ugly. Going back to the turtle knot that I was telling you about, one of the reasons I use that again is that I cannot... An old money, eight pound mono, but I can also knot 300 pound mono with the same knot without any need for crimps. Now I'll use crimps when I have to, and I'll have to get my lens absolutely bang onto the millimeter. I might decide to use a crimp, but for the most part, I will use that knot and I don't need, I don't need to use a crimp. So there's off the top of my head, there's three knots. Most anglers have got one knot and they don't even know what it's called. Yeah. But like me with the tall <laughs> knot, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> a granny knot with several turns, yeah, yeah several yeah. goes, yeah. And I've seen people use that. I, I, I think I know he's quoted as doing it. I think Ivan Marks used sort of the, the granny knot and just put more in it till it didn't slip. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, well yeah. to be fair, the, the old, the, the bog standard blood knot, not the half tuck, just the bog standard, like five tons up the line, that's still a good knot, but you need to know when to snug it up and all the rest of it. Yeah. And if in doubt, put two extra tons in it. Simple yeah, as. because the copolymers, it, it's because it's a sort of a clinch knot. It doesn't like copolymer very much, does it? And doesn't like fluorocarbon very much, yep. unless you do it absolutely perfectly. Well, so I've always steered people away from blood knots, and yep. knowing that nine times out of ten, they won't be tying it. Perfectly, yeah. and 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 I hate knots to fail. You know, I've got a, a massive knot fetish. I enjoy tying knots. I, yeah. I, I've I've sat before now with nothing to do and just sat and tied biminis in the length of line because it's a fabulous skill. Because I can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. It's a skill, and I, I've got. I won't have as many knots in my armory as you, but I would reckon that in in my everyday knot armory, I probably use a dozen different knots, That's and there's lot. not many anglers will say that. No, no, that's right. That's but for different jobs, you know what I mean? To, yeah. to achieve different things in my rigs. And yeah. invariably, it's to avoid using a metal component that I don't need. Mm. You know? So, yeah. Knots. yeah I'm, I'm, learn, I'm, learn some more yeah. knots. Yeah, that's that, that, that's so that, I, I assume, then, would be your top tip as well. Um, so, look, that, that sooner or later, I'm, I've got the window next to me here. Mm. I've got a sycamore tree that is, is cascading even more miniature bloody helicopters over my car and over my, my the forecourt of my house, which I swept up the other day, and now there's another load down. It's blowing a hooli. Assuming the wind ever stops and you can get back out on a boat again, somebody that, that you know catches a few but wants to catch more. What would I say? Uh, well... Aside from knots, then, if I could give you one one tip, and this, to be honest, it doesn't. It's not just applicable to boat anglers; it's any angler, right? Um, is organisation. It's again, you're going to get a feel for my neurosis here. Is compartmentalisation? <laughs> I am 
obsessed with, with compartments and containers. So if I've got a, a tackle box or a cool box, say, it, I don't like it just being a hole above ground. I need organization in there. I need it in such a way that I can close my eyes, you know, or, or, or basically, you know, be blinded, stick my hand in the box and lay my hand on exactly what I want without having to look at it. And that's achieved by compartmentalization. So I've got yeah. tubs like Russian dolls that fit inside tubs that take rigs, that take this, that take that. Um, and and that, that is my fetish in life. But if you look, again, I go back to, to, to my wee partner, to Scott. He's, he's copied everything I've ever done. People, people come to me and say, whoa, I saw that Scott Gibson's tackle box. Wow, what a tackle box that is. Some, some guy, him, I wonder how he come up with that. And I just laugh. And I think, well, if I open mine, you'll see it's exactly the same bloody tackle box. He's just copied everything, you know. But it works. I mean, one of the things I do, I hate rig wallets, right? On a boat, I hate rig wallets. Rig wallets are good for some things, but they're, they're bloody awful for others. And I hate too many winders as well, rig winders. You know, the EVA foam winders that yeah, yeah. the post world yeah. have now embraced that we've used for donkey's years. They're good for certain things. So one of the things that I do is a bog standard ice cream tub, or Daiwa now do a nice Enzon tub that's exactly the same size and fits so in the top of my box yeah. system as well. But what I do is it's like an old, um, what do you call these things where you used to have the um, names and addresses and you could flick through it? You know, they had File like, effects. Yeah, all that's similar, right? But basically, on the top of my box, I tie my rigs in a certain size, a poly zip bag, and I have dividers in each ice cream tub. And I have them labelled up like a real sad individual. I'm sorry, but if it's if it's like two on the bottom, I might have it labelled two down. If it's two above, I might have it two up. Whatever the hell, casting rigs, blah, blah, blah. And you can fit more than 60 rigs in one of these ice cream tubs. Really? You know, two of them in the top of your box. Not, not that everybody wants to carry that amount of rigs, but you can be so organized. And if you're fishing three or four days on the bounce, you don't have to restock every single day. When it comes to winders, if I'm using winders, color coding's a, a thing, right? So if I'm, if I'm using one down rigs and I've got one up casting rigs, my one down rigs might be on yellow winders and my other rigs might be on white winders. So I don't even need to look at the label on, I just know by the color of the winder what I'm laying my hand on. Yeah. So organization is my biggest tip for anybody. Great stuff. But yeah. Do you know, mate, we, we've, we've been chatting for over an hour and we could certainly do another hour, but we're not going to. Um, <laughs> not this time. That There may be another time. But, uh, we'll do it again, mate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah it, listen, mate, it's been superb talking to you. We, we don't talk to each other enough because uh, I certainly enjoy your company. I enjoy listening to you. And, and, and uh, yeah, we, we've got um, lots of things to talk about. I can't blag about any tarpon because I've been there for a long time or anything else, no redfish or snook or anything like that. But um, I hopefully, hopefully I will be going again soon. And one no, day absolutely. I'm going to drag you out there. It's only nine hours from Heathrow and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a different world. Mate. I'm probably just about brave enough to go with you now. So, yeah. yeah. yeah oh, I could go. probably afford it now as well. So, yeah, maybe. Oh, oh <laughs> blimey. It's, it's looking better. <laughs> Steve, so you, 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 listen, you're an absolute star. Thanks, mate. And, uh, and, and, and my love tomorrow. I hope she's keeping well and um yeah just just keep looking after yourself ah uh, great stuff keith i'll pass it on good to talk to you mate cheers mate cheers mate my thanks to steve Souter. i'm sure you'll agree he's one of angling's great characters i'll be back soon with another strange boat podcast so please like subscribe and keep listening if this is your first voyage with us there's a super back catalogue to catch up with so until next time Enjoy your fishing.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis, and I want to tell you about a podcast I've made for BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds. It's called The New Gurus, and it's about how everywhere you look on the internet, people are giving advice. Advice they claim will transform your life. Advice that gets some thousands, even millions of devoted followers. These online prophets are telling us how to eat, how to think, how to get rich, how to find love, how to manage our time. So how exactly are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? Find out by subscribing to The New Gurus wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Sports Social Podcast Network With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 